by virtue of sheer existence, Jesus is deserving of all the glory. That is not to say that he has not acted in history in order to garner for himself great exaltation. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us that though he was equal with God, he did not consider that equality as something to be grasped for or held on to. Rather, he would condescend, clothe himself in flesh like unto man. Having come as a man, he would humble himself even to the point of death and death on a cross. That at his humiliation, God would bring to pass his exaltation. That he would bear the name which is above every name. That every knee in heaven and every knee on earth and every tongue crea creation over would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus has earned for himself. He has achieved for himself, setting aside the sheer fact that he exists in absolute righteousness, in absolute perfection as the only begotten Son of God, therefore deserving of all the glory we might muster. He has, in addition to, achieved for himself through his death and resurrection, the exaltation of the Father, and the assignment of the name which is above every name, that we might gather here today and worship him in spirit and in truth. We turn our attention today away briefly from our series in Revelation to focus on a couple of passages that help us to concentrate all the more on the message of Easter. This morning's passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse number 18. To rehearse for ourselves today the purpose, the meaning, the significance of Easter, we might ask what really happened Easter Sunday. Most people know that Easter is about Jesus. Still a few more know that Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus. But there are few who really understand what truly took place in old Jerusalem almost exactly 2,000 years ago today. Even for those who may know the historical data or information that underlies the celebration of this Christian holiday, there are relatively few who understand the full importance, the spiritual or salvation experience of what God did in sending forth His Son, of what Jesus achieved through His death by crucifixion and His resurrection from that garden grave. Our whole world is wrapped up in what God did in the sending forth of His Son. What we celebrate in Easter weekend, it's, it's, it's the linchpin, it's the anchor for our soul and our salvation. All of human history hinges on the events of Christ's life. We identify this year as 2023, because by the accounting of some in history, zero is the year of Christ's birth. We count every year from that moment backwards. All of human history hinges on the work of God in the gospel through his son, Jesus Christ. And you would think, you would think that there would be broad spread understanding of the significance of this moment in human history. And I would challenge you, there are few who truly understand. 
Let's consider together today 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read the Word of God together. 1 Peter 3 and verse number 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. After being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. In that state, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient. God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There are some aspects of our passage which I will concede are challenges to interpretation. It's been a little more than a year since we actually looked at this passage in a Sunday morning setting. So if you're interested in some of the minutiae of the passage, I would point you back to website and online references to go back and revisit that message for some of the issues that we'll sort of gloss over in the time that we have together. The passage is chosen because it is a, a careful depiction of the basic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The story of what God has done in human history to save his people from their sins. Peter is dealing with here the two dimensions in which God is at work for the salvation of his people. This is an appropriate passage for us and that Easter is next Sunday, but in addition to that, we have been studying the book of Revelation together which likewise deals with the activity of God in two dimensions. There is the physical or the material realm, the, the earthly, fleshly realm, as Peter describes it in our passage, in which we live and breathe and have our existence. What we see with eyes of sight, what we touch, taste, and smell, what we experience tangibly, the world around us as we know it. In the earthly realm, in the fleshly realm, Christ has come. Indeed, he clothes himself in flesh. He lives without sin. He suffers for our sin on the cross and is raised from the dead on the third day. Simultaneously to what God is doing through his son Jesus in the fleshly realm, he is at work in the spiritual realm, achieving a victory still enjoyed by us today, a victory that will be brought to its fullness or completion at the return of our Savior Jesus. What we have in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22 is a drawing back of the veil that we might catch a glimpse of what God is doing in the spiritual realm, even behind that closed off garden tomb. What is God up to in the resurrection of Jesus? In, in the ascension of Jesus from the midst of those disciples to the right hand of God, what is achieved, what is accomplished, what does he do? First Peter 
3 and verse number 18 begins, for Christ also suffered for sins. The context in which this statement is made is the experiences of the church, the suffering, the difficulties, the hardships experienced by the church. Peter has charged the body that they be ready to give a defense for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. In spite of the hardship they face, be able to account for the joy that you continue to possess even in the face of this great suffering. In fact, he says in verse 17, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Yet again, we see this parallel experience, the suffering of Jesus who is our Savior, now as his subjects, the suffering, the anguish, the hardship experienced by the church. To a great extent, Jesus is exemplary in his suffering. He provides a model or a pattern whereby we may live. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the, in, in, the indignity, the anguish, the suffering, and the hardship of the cross. Likewise, as his subjects, for the joy that is set before us, for the joy of knowing Christ in his fullness, for the hope of resurrection and the promise of heaven, we bear with, with gladness in our heart, the indignity and the difficulty and the challenges of life in the here and now. This is what it means to take up the cross and to come after Jesus. But make no mistake, make no mistake, but Jesus is exemplary in his suffering. He is no mere example. Verse 18 says that Christ also suffered for sins. Indeed, he did. Likewise, you and I will suffer for sins, for our own and for the sins of others. But none have suffered like our Savior, Jesus. Jesus suffers vicariously. Jesus suffers for our sins, not his own, but for ours. Jesus suffers as our substitute. Jesus suffers in our place. You may struggle to understand vicarious suffering, but we understand from grade school the concept of a substitute or substitution. If you're in grade school and there's a substitute teacher, it means everyone is going to behave badly on that day. You're programmed to know it to respond accordingly. Can you remember when you got to about the third grade and you, you get there in the morning, you get off the bus and you're just sort of doing your playground thing before the bell rings and we all go to class and there begins to be a buzz. It's first from one group to the next. Miss so-and-so's out, we got a substitute. And you know who, who the weak subs are? And you, you know when the name is announced on the playground, how far you can push the envelope on that day. We understand from childhood concept of substitution. that Someone is standing in for someone else. And dear brothers, this is precisely what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Jesus took my place on the cross. Jesus took your place on the cross. Jesus bore the wrath of God deserved by me at the cross. Jesus bore the wrath of God deserved by you at the cross. Jesus is our substitute at the cross. Christ also suffered for sin. And those sins were not his own. 
In fact, essential to our salvation and often overlooked aspect of the gospel is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. But for his perfect righteousness, he'd be found an unfitting sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God, without spot or blemish, slain before the foundation of the world. He came to take our place on the cross. He is our substitute. The Bible says again, Christ also suffered for sins once for all. Think of how the notion of Jesus suffering once for all might resonate with the Jewish audience in the first century. For all of their life, their entire religious experience revolved around the letting of the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and pigeon and turtle doves. They had watched this constant flow of blood rush forth from the temple complex in the sacrificial system for all of their religious life. From birth, the Jew knew of the letting of blood and the sacrificial system and its essential nature to their good standing with God. Priests were responsible for the making of sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people collectively. Father was responsible for providing a sacrifice suitable to atone for the sins of his family. An individual in the act or commission of sin was responsible for providing a sacrifice to atone for his particular sin. And again and again and again, the cycle would run its course. Every sacrifice foreshadowing the full and final sacrifice that would ultimately be, ultimately be made by the shedding of Christ's own blood. Jesus suffered for sins once and for all. Consider the course of human history and how God has moved and worked providentially to bring an abrupt halt to the sacrificial system soon after the resurrection of Jesus. If you study world history, you'll unpack eventually if you get deep enough into world history, you'll unpack and investigate geopolitical movements in the late first century that ultimately led to Titus's invasion and the Roman Empire's invasion of the city of Jerusalem and the final demolition of the temple that existed in that city. You'll see it within the framework of world history as the outcome of certain geopolitical events. But the theological telling of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is that God just doesn't have a purpose for that anymore. There's no need for a temple in Jerusalem. Jesus is the temple of our God. We no longer meet with God in a building. We meet with God in the body of his son, Jesus. We don't need an altar on which blood sacrifice might be made. We have the hill Golgotha where Jesus' blood was shed for you and for me. Christ also suffered for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. I don't know if there's a better capturing of the message of the gospel in three words anywhere else in the Bible than the righteous for the unrighteous. We can understand what God does at the cross in both a negative and a positive way. I don't mean there's a bad thing that happens and a good thing that happens. I mean that on the cross, something is taken away, and at the cross, something is given. The righteous is given over in the place of the unrighteous. Our sin is atoned for. The full wrath of God against our sin is embraced by Jesus at the cross. 
my sin and your sin was placed upon the body of Jesus and the wrath of God was poured out against him at the cross. It's a powerful thing that Jesus embraces. In that moment, the sky grows dark and the earth begins to tremble and Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in a moment, Jesus drinks the bitter cup of God's wrath against our sin. It's incomprehensible what Jesus embraces in that moment. We will never understand the full force of God's wrath against his only son that the penalty for our sin might be paid for eternally. It's been noted through Christian history, there are three moments in, in history when God pours his wrath in full measure. Genesis 6 flood account, and all of creation save Noah and his family and the animals aboard the ark are destroyed in the flood of God's wrath. The events at the end of days, which we've been studying together in the book of Revelation, when God pours out his wrath on all unrighteousness and at the crossroads of human history, when on Calvary's hill, the wrath of God is poured out in full upon his son that your sin and my sin might be that we, me, we might receive a pardon for our sin. Our worldly points of reference are, are frail and don't adequately depict the nature of this pardon we receive from God. Within our system, system of governance, we see pardon periodically, usually when a governor or a president is preparing to leave office, there'll be a list of individuals for whom he will sign a pardon. They will be released from their sentence. Politicians do this at the end of their term because they know this is an unfavorable act in the eyes of the people. Their constituents will likely be dissatisfied and that they have in some ways been violated or offended by those who will be pardoned. What the pardon means in our system of governance is that the full penalty for one's crime will never be served. But the pardon that you and I receive by the blood of Jesus Christ is altogether different. We might say that a pardon in our system of governance is unjust in that it leaves off the service of the full penalty for one's sin. But the pardon that we receive by the blood of Jesus is perfectly justified and that the full measure of our penalty is paid by Jesus Christ. And the New Testament is careful to make this note. 1 John 1, 9 is one of dozens of examples where the Bible says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and justified to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Not only is God faithful and consistent about granting forgiveness to those who confess their sins, he is perfectly justified in doing so in that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. God is never giving a wink and a nod to our sin. He's never turning a blind eye. He's never behaving in a dismissive way toward our sin. The penalty for our sin is death. And that's precisely the bitter cup that his only son drinks upon the cross. Christ also suffered for our sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. The 
cross, our sin is taken away. That's the negative. Something is removed. But there is, in addition to this, a blessed positive in that just as our sin is placed upon Christ, his perfect righteousness is placed upon us. When we talk about the gospel, this is not a criticism, it's just an observation, I do the same. When we talk about the gospel, we almost always rush hastily to the cross and resurrection. But I want you to know that the perfect righteousness of Jesus established in the 30 some odd years that precede his death and resurrection are as crucial to your salvation as his work on the cross or his vacating the garden grave. Jesus in his earthly life and ministry fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. He was establishing over those 30 some odd years a storehouse of righteousness that he would attribute to your account and to mine by faith in him. One day, I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of God, and I'm going to be judged on the basis of works. Only they will not be mine. They'll be the perfect work of his only son, Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters, I can pass the test on that basis. It's the only hope I've got. It's the only hope in heaven or in earth. God has granted that by faith in his son, that I might get credit for what Jesus has done in my stead. It is a blessed thing to get credit for what someone else has done. When I was in the sixth grade at Henderson Elementary School, we, we, were, we were given an, an assignment. It was actually in an English class, but, but they had coupled our work in English to an art class for a very particular reason, the details I don't entirely remember. At that time, my parents were newly divorced and, and, and or well, had been divorced for some time. We're sort of, sort of settling into a new life and, and my dad was on the verge of remarrying woman who has become my stepmom and, and who I love dearly. She's a graphic art designer, one of the most artistic and one of the most artistically gifted people that I have ever known. When you're 11 or 12 year old boy and family situation is what it is, you learn how to manipulate that. You learn how to make the best of that that you can. And so you sit down to do your art project and you pretend as though you can't pull it off in order that new stepmom can try to earn some favor with stepson and help with the project. In other words, if you play your cards just right, you can get her to do your homework for you. She drew, I'll never forget, it was a marlin. And it was the most beautiful thing you have ever seen in your life. Y'all will think I'm kidding, but to the best of my knowledge, it is still hanging in Henderson Elementary School with my name on it. And I didn't have a thing in the world to do with it. This is an exponentially more what God has done for us through his son Jesus. And that he has assigned by faith the work of his son. Work that by far exceeds anything that we might muster to our account. When a person repents of their sin and believes on Jesus, the work of Jesus is assigned to us. 
just as our sin was assigned to Jesus on the cross. Isn't that a blessed thing? The Bible says again, Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus came with a purpose, to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus died with a purpose, that he might bring us to God. When I, when I, I've shared this, we've rehearsed this before, but when I hear an individual say that they're trying to get to heaven or they're trying to be a Christian or they're trying to be faithful to Jesus, it, it, it always indicates to me that they fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the gospel. Because the gospel is not about our personal efforts. It's about what God has efforted for us in his son, Jesus. The only way that you can get to God is through the finished work of Jesus. This is what he came to do. What was Jesus doing Easter weekend? He was getting us to God. He was doing the work necessary in order to reconcile an irreconcilable people to a perfectly righteous God. If you read the Old Testament, there is an air of hopelessness with which the Old Testament ends. It begins with Adam's sin, and from that moment forward, we are separated from God. It is the story of various efforts along the way to bring about restoration and reconciliation between a righteous God and an unrighteous people. And again and again and again, the people of God failed to live up to God's standard or expectation. Ten Commandments, Laws of Moses, Covenant at Sinai. And Israel proves again and again and again that they don't have the collective ability to do it. You and I prove by virtue of our daily experience, we don't have the ability to measure up to the standard of God. Then the end of the Old Testament, it's not the kind of thing that you read, but if you're careful to be observant, you'll note that there are 400 years of prophetic silence. It's one last remnant in the lineage of David, carried away captive, eventually returning as a governor. He's well short of serving as king. And he certainly doesn't seem to be the kind of guy God might have had, had in mind when he talked about an eternal king on the throne of Israel, one in the lineage of David. There is an air of hopelessness and despair with which the Old Testament ends. Until Jesus clothes himself in flesh and walks in our midst to do what we couldn't do for ourselves to do what collective Israel could not accomplish in thousands of years of their history. Jesus came and he died and he rose again in order that he might bring you and I to God. Now the verse continues after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. Now for the sake of time, I'm gonna gloss over some of the details of the verses that follow after. But what's being noted here is that what Jesus does in the fleshly realm, he died, he was buried, he rose again. It has bearing in the, something, is, something unseen is unfolding even as the gospel itself is being performed in the observable world around us. He went in that state, verse 19, that is in the resurrected state and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. It is as though Jesus is just passing through the prison, and as passing through, he makes a proclamation or a declaration. Verse 20, who are those spirits? 
They're the ones who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Now, you can go back and find the details in the treatment of this passage from a little more than a year ago now. I think it was the first Sunday in March of last year, and you can go back and you can find those details. But in short, what's being described here is an extra biblical tradition, a tradition from outside of, Bi of the Bible, where fallen angels came to earth and intermarried with rebellious daughters of men. And, and it created a scenario that was just crazy and bad and irredeemable. And as a result of that, God brought the flood, saving only eight, Noah, his family, and those animals aboard the ark. Now, in order to remedy that situation, God moved in this act of judgment and salvation simultaneously. God, God gave a verdict with regards to those fallen angels. They were found guilty and they were placed in prison. But the scenario as it's presented for us here in 1 Peter chapter 3 is one of Jesus now on the authority vested in him as the risen son of God makes a sentence for those who are in prison. Jesus makes a proclamation against them. He proclaims, he decrees, he declares their deservedness for being in that prison. He decrees, declares, proclaims the justice of God in their being in that prison, and he passes sentence against them. The only future they can look forward to is one of a lake of fire and of brimstone. Now, what Peter is doing is citing this example from the past where God moved in this act of salvation, and even as he acted in salvation for Noah and his family, he subjected the powers of heaven, the powers and principalities and the darkness to himself. So now Jesus has moved these thousands of years later in this act of salvation. We're not boarding a boat to, to experience the salvation of God. We're no longer getting into a boat. We get into the body of Christ by faith. We are joined together with Jesus. That is our safe place against the flood of God's wrath that is to come in the body of Jesus. Simultaneous to that, he is subjecting the rulers and the powers and the principalities of darkness to himself. When Jesus says in the Great Commission, when the resurrected Jesus says in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, that's not just a tag on to bring to close what Jesus really wanted to say in the Great Commission. He's referencing a substantive change in status, in spiritual position. Everything has now changed both in earth and in heaven. The rulers and the princes and the powers of darkness have now been subjected to the sovereign authority of Jesus finally and forever. Satan has been bound. Now point this out because I think the tendency is that people would live in fear of Satan. It's going to get us, lead us to do bad things. And there's some degree of reasonableness about this concern, Peter would say later in 1 Peter, that Satan prowls about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But I would recommend to you this morning, it is a far more reasonable position 
that you would fear God than fearing Satan. It is the bow of God's wrath which is bent against you. Satan is on a short leash with a sovereign God, and he is only permitted by the providence of God to do in your life what will ultimately serve your good and the glory of his name. One better ought to fear God than Satan. Powers of hell have been subjected to the authority of Jesus Christ. This example from the past now serves as a model for us in understanding what God has done in the spiritual realm through the death and resurrection of Jesus. What we saw was Jesus dying on the cross and being raised again on the third day. But there is a spiritual reality behind this material experience. Jesus is passing through this prison that holds these fallen spirits and he declares against them their judgment and he ascends to the right hand of God that position of power Jesus is the king of kings and the lord of lords and that's more than just a polite acknowledgement or title for what Jesus is or how he is at work in the world Jesus really is lord he really is in charge Satan is a petty tyrant but Jesus Christ is lord this status is achieved by Jesus through his death on the cross and his victory in resurrection. It's not just that God has done something in the past and has since been inactive, anticipating a day when he would move again. It is that Jesus is actively lording over all creation at the present hour for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. Now listen, y'all come in close. Th this is the essence of the Christian message. That the just one has been given over for the unjust. That he might bring us to God. And I wonder if there's ever been a time in your life when you traded your unrighteousness for the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. I know in a congregation like this, there are people who are lost, separated from God. And I have I've preached now the third sermon today with a sense of frustration. There are people each of these three congregations gathered today for various reasons who are far from God simply will not see. They have eyes, but they don't see, and ears, but they don't hear, and hearts, but they don't discern. You want to see them repent of sin and turn to faith in Jesus so badly. But that's a work that's beyond the pay grade of this pastor. Only God can touch and turn the hearts of men. I pray that he'd be pleased to do that. I, I pray that you would reckon with the truth of the gospel, that Jesus has died in our place, taking the full wrath of God against our sin. And I pray that today would be the day when you would exchange your unrighteousness for the perfect righteousness of Jesus. This act of Jesus' death and resurrection, it's, it's mercy to sinners who see their need for a savior. It's judgment for those who don't have eyes to see and will not have ears to hear and refuse a heart to discern. 
And I pray that today would be that milestone moment in your life when you would repent and believe. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has lived without sin. He died in our place, and he rose again the third day. The invitation, the manner in which we are to respond to that message is faith and repentance. We believe in our heart the truth of the message with the utmost sincerity. We confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, gladly repenting of all our sins. Even the idea of repentance is grossly misunderstood in our culture. It connotes deprivation, giving up things that we enjoy or that we delight in. It's almost always understood negatively. If you heard a reference, if you were watching television tonight, prime time, and there was a reference to repentance, it would almost always have negative connotations. Even the way we illustrate this at times, we're headed in this direction, and then we are called by the gospel and we turn the other way, even that connotes neglect of self, self-deprivation. Here's, here's the thing. When you see Jesus for who he is, you will gladly flee the cares and concerns of this life to know Christ in his fullness. You'll be deprived of some earthly desires. You'll be deprived of those things that seek to counterfeit the fulfillment and satisfaction that we have in Jesus, but you won't care to count the cost because what you'll have found in the pearl of great price by far exceeds the value of anything that this world could ever hope to offer. So I, I want to invite you. I want, I want you to listen, listen, listen. I want to invite you this morning to reckon with the truth of the gospel that God is tender and merciful towards sinners. That he gives grace to the humble. Dear friends, I would warn you that he makes war against the proud. So if you, with a haughty spirit, would hold fast to your sin, you've got a hard road to hope. But if this morning you would gladly exchange your unrighteousness for the perfect righteousness of Jesus, he'll take that heavy yoke from off you burden you with the easy yoke of his gentle and lowly mercy. Doesn't that sound like a sweet deal to make? I want you to know him. Oh, I want you to know him so much. Now, church, you think, you think that all your friends and all your family and Hernando know this message. And I'm telling you, they do not. Your, your friends and your family, they don't know the gospel. There's some that do, sure. But by and large, they do not know. Hernando, Mississippi does not know the message. Of, now listen, I love my little town. This town does not know the message of the gospel. And DeSoto County, as wonderful as it is, does not know the message of the gospel. Church folks, what I'm inviting you to do is to declare war against bunnies and, and eggs and chocolate in the next week and a half. There's a door of opportunity for you to share. And I'm not saying all those things are bad. Don't be trying to rob your kids next weekend of that basket full of goodies because the preacher sits. Then you put it on me. I know how you do. I'm just saying that, not, that ought not to be the primary focus of our celebration over the next days is this great door of opportunity is open for us. Let us insist upon the celebration of the resurrection of the one who bled and died for you and for me that we might know the gift of everlasting life. Satan is very crafty and clever that he's managed to make 
a, a marketing maneuver out of certain Christian holidays. You won't walk in a department store or Walmart for the next two weeks without being bombarded with chocolate bunnies and Easter eggs and pink and purple dresses and all kinds of strange colors. Why don't, we, why don't we just seize upon these symbols and signals to talk about the resurrection of the one who died in our place? This is, this is the Lord's day. Every day is the Lord's day. In this season, when we look to the day of his resurrection with so much force collectively as a culture, let us be careful that he is lifted high, that all men might be drawn unto him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for the time that you've given us to be together this morning, concentrating on the message of the gospel. Hide it in our hearts, Lord, that we might not sin in rejecting the free grace of the gospel. I pray that you would work and move by the power of your Holy Spirit that some might believe, might today be the day when someone's unrighteousness is traded for the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Call us to yourself, Lord, in power. We ask it in Jesus' name.